Well, last week we looked at chapter 5, the healing of the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. And chapter 5 really includes that miracle and the discourse with Jesus that followed. Now we look at chapter 6. And chapter 6 in verse 1 begins by saying, after these things. Now I want you to know that there is a lot that has happened between the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. There's, there's a lot of things when John says, after these things. But remember, John is not writing to give us a detailed play-by-play account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. In fact, the very last verse in his gospel, he says, if we were to do that, if we were to look at every detail, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to write this in. I think his main idea here, his main point is, we'll miss the forest for the trees. And so he says, instead, I've written with a very specific purpose. And he tells us what that purpose is. When he says that I've written in order that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing you have life in his name. And so he gives us very specific information to help us come to an understanding of this most important truth. Now, some of the things that John does not refer to that have happened between the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6 are things that we would be familiar with. Things like the Sermon on the Mount. Things like uh, the calming of the sea when the disciples were afraid by the storm and Jesus was asleep. And then he told the sea to be still and it was quiet. The other thing I think that has happened most recently and perhaps most importantly is uh, King Herod has now killed John the Baptist, had him beheaded. We know from the other Gospels that, 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 that Jesus and his disciples, after hearing this news, after having been involved in this ministry, needed to step away. And so they set out on a boat across the Sea of Galilee to find a place to just kind of catch their breath a little bit. But if you've been in ministry very long, you know that there's a lot of time, not a lot of rest in ministry. And that was true for them because they get to the other side and let's look together at what was found. Chapter 6, verse 1 of John. It says, After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias, and a great multitude was following him, because they were seeing the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Jesus, therefore, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a great multitude was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread that these may eat? And this he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive even a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? The passage tells us that the, the, the Passover feast was at hand. This is important because it's a marker of time. You remember when we looked at when Jesus was clearing the temple, it was the Passover. So this is the second Passover that's mentioned, and we know that that means he's one year away from the cross. 
And the other the reason that it's important is because it tells us how such a large number of people could gather in such a short period of time. See, they were in a pilgrimage towards Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast as was customary. So apparently, someone sees Jesus and made mention of it. Before long, all eyes are on him and a huge crowd had gathered. And although Jesus, I'm sure, along with his disciples, was, was weary, his compassion overruled his weariness. And he turns to Philip and he, and he asks him a question. And the scripture tells us that question is a test. <laughs> and, and let me clarify here that, that that is not a temptation towards sin, but instead it is an effort to help deepen the faith of this man, this disciple, Philip. He asks him, where are we to buy bread that these may eat? And Philip actually was the logical person to ask this question to. This was his hometown. He grew up in this area. So where he lived was just a few miles away. So it would make sense that he would be the one that Jesus would, would ask this question to. I would also remind you that, that Philip was the one who told Nathaniel after having met Jesus. He says, we have found the one who Moses in the law and also the prophets spoke. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph. Perhaps this test was intended to help Philip understand that Jesus is so much more than he ever expected. That he's not just a prophet like Moses He's someone far greater. He's, he's not just the son of Joseph. Jesus is the son of God. And so Jesus asked him, where can we buy enough bread? Well, apparently Philip was pretty good with math because <laughs> he looks out at the crowd and he does a quick estimation. And he says, look, Jesus, it would take 200 denarii and that wouldn't even be enough to give everybody just a little. And 200 denarii is about an eight months salary, about eight months worth of salary. It's a lot of money. And he said, there's no way that we can compile that much money. One thing, people wouldn't carry that kind of money around with them, but probably just as significant is what are the chances of going to a local bakery and saying, hey, we need 200 denarii worth of bread to feed some 10,000 people? Not very likely, is it? And so he tells him, this is what we need, and even that wouldn't be enough. See, Philip was thinking in terms of what they might do in order to make this happen. Jesus wanted them to forfeit their own strategies and recognize that this is something that only God could do. Well, Andrew steps in, another disciple, and he poses another solution and says, well, look, here's a, here's a young lad who has a lunch. It's five loaves of bread and two, uh, two fish. But his conclusion is the same. It, it's not even close. It's not near enough. I don't know that he's actually offering a solution as much as he is trying to magnify the insignificance of any solution that they might have to offer. All we have is this little boy's poor man's lunch. You see, barley was a really coarse. It was a poor man's bread. It was very coarse. And very often it had to be eaten with something like fish just to make it more palatable. As it goes down. Luke's record of this same account tells us that after offering these solutions, which really they weren't solutions, were they? They were an obvious statement of we have no solution. They concluded, we just need to send these people home. 
because there's nothing we can do. See, the test was intended to bring the disciples to a place where they were convinced that they had no solutions to offer. And that they would recognize at that point that there was a need for divine intervention, something that only God could do. I want us to watch and and learn how Jesus helps them understand this truth. Look at verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number of about 5,000. Jesus therefore took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise, also of the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they were filled, his, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. See, Philip had suggested that it would take an impossible amount of money just to give everybody a little bit. Jesus took very little and gave everybody more than they could ask or imagine. Look how he did it. He did it by putting everything in its proper order. You see, for my type A personality friends, this may be the most exciting part of the miracle. <laughs> you know, how do you feel feed a, basically a large, a small city of people? It said 5,000 men, but including women and children, there's probably estimates of about 10,000 people here. How in the world are you going to feed that many people? My analytical physician friend Luke in his gospel tells us specifically that Jesus told them to sit in groups of 50. You see, God is a God of order because that order ordained by him ensures equality. Because we all know, left to themselves, if they were going to distribute this food, it would be chaos. And there would be some who would have way too much and some who would have nothing. And that wasn't the way God works. The order and direction given by Jesus was necessary for the people to see the miracle. In other words, the miracle cannot happen unless it happens on his terms. And this miracle is, or this order is also what gives all these people, that gives uh, the, Jesus their undivided attention. See, all eyes are on him. And what does he do? He points to God the Father, which is the goal and purpose of his mission. And he gives thanks to God. Why? For doing only what God can do. And notice that, that no one came to get food. You see that? To have them sit down. And we'll bring it to them. And they give them the food that they need. Not only did everyone have enough, it tells us that there were 12 baskets left over. Now there may be significance in that number 12, but I, I think the main point is that, that Jesus had done in, in feeding the 5,000 something that only God had previously done when he fed the Israelites in the wilderness in such miraculous ways. And I know, because of what has followed, that they make that connection. But do you remember what happened to the manna in the wilderness when they tried to keep leftovers? It spoiled. They tried. They tried to keep leftovers, and it rotted. And... He said, you've got to depend on me 
for a daily supply. But what Jesus did now far exceeds anything that even Moses did in the wilderness. Because now they had not just what they needed, but an abundance of what they needed. And the leftovers were gathered because they did not spoil. Jesus had provided something that was unprecedented. Now look at the response of the multitude in verse 14. When therefore the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is of the truth, this is of a truth, the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus therefore, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. See, once again, the miracle really has its desired effect. Everyone turned to Jesus and recognized that he was uniquely appointed by God. Because of that specific miracle that they performed, I believe they looked at Jesus and saw him as the prophet like Moses that the scripture spoke of. Moses himself said in Deuteronomy 18.15, he says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. So they make the connection. They say, this is the one like Moses. And if Moses delivered the people of Israel from Egypt, then Jesus can deliver us from the Roman rule. The best way for us to make that happen is to make him king. But here's the deal. Jesus is already king. Just not on the terms that they had in mind. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, whether we recognize Him as such or not. But He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. You see, the selfish interest of the people was a distraction to the selfless mission of Jesus. And so He slipped away to be alone. Alone in the sense of being away from people, but not alone in the sense of being a part of that fellowship of the Trinity. As we consider this miracle and its significance because of it being the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels, the other thing that's helpful is that we actually have a commentary given to us by Jesus to understand why this is important. And so I want us to, to, to look at that together. As I do, I want to kind of draw your attention to the fact that as we left off here, Jesus has slipped away. And at, at some point in time, he gathers the disciples together. and He says, okay, let's head back over to the other side of the lake. And as he does, like relatives that won't go away, the people meet him on the other side, right? And they catch up with him there. Look at verse 24. When the multitude, therefore, saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into small boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? (laughs) That just cracks me up. (laughs) I mean, it's so insincere. Oh, look, everybody, it's Jesus. Who would have thought? When did you get here? Who says there's not humor in Scripture? Look at verse 26. Jesus perceived their insincerity, and look at what he says in answering them. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, seek me. 
not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. (laughs) Do not work for food which perishes, but for food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you. For on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. They said, therefore, to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? See, verse 28 is the first of of three revealing questions that the crowd asks of Jesus to answer. And I want us to examine those questions, kind of like we did last week when we looked at that question that Jesus asked the paralytic man. Do you want to be healed? And I want us to consider the answer that Jesus gives and how that applies to our life. And so this first question is, is, is right there in verse uh, 28. And they say, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? See, Jesus made it clear that he was unwilling to supply meals to those who have no appetite for God. They were only looking for food. And Jesus wanted them to know that, they, that he was there on God's behalf. That, that was what's intended to be communicated when it says that uh, for on him, the Father, even God, has set his seal. If you'll think about those, that time in history when somebody had something of importance, let's say a king, and, and they wanted to transfer information to somebody, the king put his seal so that when that seal was received, the people would know this is from the king. And so what Jesus is saying is when you hear from me, you hear from God. He has put his seal on me. And I think at some level, maybe there was a response of an element of guilt. <laughs> well, since we don't need to be looking for a free handout, they ask the question, what do we need to do? It's such a natural response for all of us. I really want God is off, what God is offering, and, and, and so what do I need to do to receive it? I think this may be one of the main points of the test that Jesus had for the disciples. What are all the possible solutions that you guys can come up with for feeding this many people? Well, they went through the process, didn't they? Well, we don't have enough money. We don't have enough food. Well, Jesus, there's really nothing we could do. Exactly. Exactly. That's the conclusion he wanted them to come to. Jesus wanted them to see and believe that this was only something that God can do. And I believe he desires the exact same thing from these people. Look at what he says in verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Like the feeding of the 5,000, the gift of eternal life is something only God can do. Go through your list, but find yourself insufficient. It's something only God can do. See, he initiates his love towards us. We respond in faith, and that's where the miracle begins. The miracle of that transforming work of the the Holy Spirit that that allows us to recognize and see the sin in our life, to to come to Jesus, our Savior, for forgiveness, to empower us to live in obedience to God's will for our life. What must we do? Believe 
and let God do what only God can do. Not just once, but over and over again in life. Believe and let God do what only God can do in marriages that are broken. Believe and let God do what only God can do in families that are hurting. That's a great story that uh, was told just this week. That fits perfectly. Story of, of Kelsey Byers and her sons as they were visiting not too long ago about a difficult time that they were in and changes that they were going through. And I just think in wisdom, I'm so pleased to hear how she led her kids in faith. And she tells them, she says, listen, here's what we're going to do. I want you to pray for God to do something that only God can do. Just think of what is important to you and just go to the Lord and ask him to care for us in a way that you see important. So they talked about that for a little bit. And and one of them said, you know, I want us to be safe. And so, <laughs> my prayer is that we, when we find this new home, because that's the process that they were in, when, when we find a new home, that it will have an electric fence in the backyard. <laughs> I'm sure Kelsey probably just kind of took a gulp of air and just thought, okay, this will be interesting, you know. So they didn't have a house at the time. They go looking, and finally they, they find a house that they can afford that's going to meet their needs. Guess what's in the backyard? an electric fence around the perimeter of the fence. When was the last time you found yourself having exhausted all your options? Do you believe and trust in what God and only God can do? See, I think this leads to the next logical question that these people probably then ask. Look at verse 30. They said, therefore, to him, what then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. That is, as it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus, therefore, said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, It is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Well, if there's nothing I can do, they essentially conclude from Jesus' answer, and and all I do is believe, then what exactly am I believing in? They say, "I, I can't do work, so then what work can you do? I can't earn favor, so how can you earn ours? And then they point to Moses, the one that Jesus is being compared to. And they, as if he needed reminding, tells them about what happened in the wilderness when God gave them manna from heaven. And basically they're asking Jesus, hey, can you do something of equal or greater magnitude? Keep in mind that these are the people who just ate from five loaves and two fish as Jesus fed 5,000 people. Same people asking this question. But you see, what they were doing is they wanted more than a one-hit wonder. They wanted something like manna in the wilderness, something that happens every single day. Now, I want you to know that I read this, and I hope it kind of pricks you a little bit as well, because I thought, 
you know, we're not all that different. God has already given us so many good things, but how often we go wanting something just a little bit better, something more. See, God can be so faithful in our life, and we can be so forgetful. And we often ask, what have you done for me lately? But in the end, we must learn to love Christ for himself alone and not just for what he gives us. See, if grace has truly changed our heart, listen, if grace has truly changed our heart, then we don't ultimately care what goes, what life, what happens in life and it goes our way as long as we have him. That's what matters most. Jesus is telling them, this is not about giving you what you want. This is about giving you all you need. That's what he says in verse 32. I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. His first point is that, listen, just a reminder, Moses didn't give you that bread out of heaven. God did. And more importantly, that bread has now come down out of heaven that gives life to the world. This goes back to the order and purpose of God. It's like the the feeding of the 5,000. What God offers must be received on God's terms as you trust in the goodness of His provision. It's not about what you do to earn his favor. It's not about what he does to earn yours. If you truly have an appetite for God, then sit down and receive what he is offering you. Trust that he will accomplish what he's promised. Apparently, this gets their attention. Because what do they say? They they say, we want some of that bread of life that you're talking about. So look at what Jesus says in verse 35. Jesus says to them, well, let me back up to 34. Look at their statement. They said, therefore, him to him, Lord, evermore, give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. For I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All the Father gives me shall come to me and the one who comes to me i will certainly not cast out for i have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me and this is the will of him who sent me that of all that he has given me i lose nothing but raise it up on the last day for this is the will of my father that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him may have eternal life And I myself will raise him up on the last day. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, will never thirst again. In other words, I am the sustenance of your life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is all you have? That he's all you need. Let me ask you the question then. 
when you face challenges in your life, are you looking to Jesus and His Word for hope and direction? Or do you set it aside and seek all those solutions on your own? Is He your first choice or your last resort? What about this? Do you find joy in the trials that you encounter, knowing that they ultimately are designed, like Jesus intended for the disciples, to bring you to a place that deepens your faith as you learn to trust and depend on Him alone? Trusting in the good that He will bring from any circumstance, especially, especially those that we cannot accomplish on our own. See, the love of God is, is ever-present and drawing us to Himself. In fact, Jesus Himself said, No one comes to the Son unless the Father who sent me draws him. See, Jesus always takes the initiative and invites us to respond to that love in faith. Like the boy who gave up his lunch. He gave everything he had, five loaves and two fish. We, too, are called to come to Jesus and give Him all we have. And that's where the miracle begins. As God transforms our life into the image of His Son for the praise and the glory of His name. And I think like the disciples, Jesus wants us to go through our list of options and and ultimately conclude, You are my only hope. And I trust in God alone. So believe in His promises. Trust in His love. And find that He is faithful. Now, I've not done this before, and so I'm going to ask for your help. I don't think I'm a very good singer. (laughs) I've never led singing. This is kind of scary. But here's what we're going to do, because I think the words of that song we know, um, that I can't remember... Turn your eyes on Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. We all know that chorus, right? And so I just want us to sing that chorus. I want you to sing loud so it'll cover me. But I want you to sing and listen to the words because they really encapsulate the heart of what we've talked about today. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen. Let me pray for us, and then I want to close this with some words. God, thank you for the truth of your word that brings us to that place where you invite us to trust in you alone. Thank you for your patience that you allow us. You even ask us questions that prompt us to consider, how would you solve this? What are your solutions? Knowing that we eventually are going to get to the end of ourselves and and, and conclude, this is going to take something that only God can do. And you, in grace and mercy, say, yes, and I will. Trust me. May we all come to that place, not just once, but over and over again in our life when we face the difficulties of this world, this side of heaven, and we 
can come with boldness and know that each and every one of those times, like that bread that you provided, you sustain us day by day for all eternity. To the praise and glory of your name.